Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, Brian and I talk about the concept of imposter syndrome, feeling like you don't belong in academia, and that at some point everyone's going to realize it and they're going to figure out you're the imposter, you don't belong. Talk about our experiences with it, the things we've done to deal with it, uh, how it's manifested in our lives, and uh, hopefully you get a couple strategies in case any of this applies to your experience. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Prophet's Error. We've got an uh, interesting chat today. We are talking about something called imposter syndrome. So I'm joined, as always, by Brian Franz. Brian, how are you doing today? I am great. So, imposter syndrome. Do you uh, do you have thoughts on this? Have you had you heard about this before joining academia? Uh, to be honest, no. Me neither. Um. <laughs> it's a super common <laughs> but, thing, but I didn't yeah. know this was a, this yeah. was a thing. I hear it all the time now. But me yeah. too. So, for anyone listening, maybe maybe you've heard the term, maybe you know what it is, maybe you don't. Right? Imposter syndrome is essentially kind of a, a neuroses that some of us will get when we are in various fields, but it's somewhat common in academia, where there will be this sense that I am an imposter, that at some point others will realize I'm not really good enough to be here. I'm not smart enough. My output's not good enough. Some nagging negativity will, will uh, go on in your own brain and you will be convinced that others will figure out, oh, you really shouldn't be here. You know, Steve's not really qualified to be here. Brian shouldn't be here. They're, they're the ones who don't belong. All the rest of us, we're doing perfectly well, but they don't belong, right? Which even listening kind of in the abstract, my guess is any listener would be like, yeah, that's ridiculous. But going through it, it can yeah. feel a bit real, right? So any, any other things you would add to just what the imposter syndrome experience, you know, feels like or what you've seen in others or, or read about that that would be helpful just to define what it is? Yeah, so I, I think it occurs, I mean, it's mostly in kind of high achieving people yeah. who are in sort of high achieving careers. So it's people who um, really seek perfection. They they really want everything they do to, to be a, of the highest quality. Um, and they just, the the kind of issue with it is that ultimately they, they fail to internalize and sort of accept their own accomplishments, right? They feel like, um, as Steve was alluding, they feel like a fraud, basically. It's, it's like almost like there's a criminal, you know, fraud here Mm -hmm. and you're, you're just fooling everyone, right? You're, you're convincing everyone that you know what you're doing, that you're, you're capable, that you're confident. Um, and that at some point, in the future, someone's going to figure it out. Yeah. They're going to find There's going to be an audit. Right. <laughs> and when the They're audit find goes out, <laughs> Your boss is going to come, you know, to your office, your That's department right. head or whatever is going to come to your office and say, you are not as good as you said that you were. Yeah. Right. And they're going to just force you out because they're going to realize everything that you did was, was a fake. Yeah. Right. And those feel, it seems, again, Steve alluded to it. It seems irrational. Yeah. Um, but when you're in the middle of it, it seems very real. And, and 
Yeah, I, I'll volunteer now. I think we'll talk about this through the episode. Look, this yeah. whole podcast, I think, is about celebrating failure and, and how struggles may lead to success. So I'll be the first to say I felt it. I still feel it from time to time. Um, you know, as a grad student, I felt it. As a junior faculty, I felt it, right? As a, someone who's been here for a while, I still feel it. So it, so it is um, something that I, I will be the first to say. I, I'm, I'm speaking today not as an authority on the topic, but as someone who I feel like is at least qualified to talk about my one experience with the topic. So I guess I'm saying this, if anyone's listening and they say, yeah, I've been feeling this, you know, I, I know I felt it on my side. I think, Brian, you, you would probably say the same for, for years. Yep. I mean, this is, I think, a lot of faculty um, and those in academia feel it. I think part of the challenge we have in academia is we've got an environment that is conducive to this kind of neuroses if you're also working with a bunch of people that are um, have the tendency toward it, right, which, which we have a lot of higher achievers, the things you're talking about. And so I think a lot of the challenge of why we get this is if you look at kind of the academic path that leads to an academic career, you start out in you know elementary school, middle school, high school, you do really well, you get into college, right? You get to college. If you do really well, you get into the, the top major of the really challenging, rigorous major that you, you get your first choice in your major. And if you do really well, you get into a master's program and you get to go get a master's. If you do really well, you get to go get a PhD. And each of these steps I'm talking about is kind of a, 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 a winnowing down of the population of others that are, are applying for whatever this, this aim is, whether it's because they don't want it or, or they haven't tried or whether it's really just achievement levels and you have generally been a high achieving individual. Point I'm getting at though is somewhere in that journey, right? Whether it's an undergrad, master's, PhD or faculty level, somewhere in that journey, your, your pool of data that you're collecting as an individual starts to change, right? Because you get you know, elementary school, middle school, high school data that says you're good. You got GPA of this. You're good. You got honor roll. You're good. You got this. You're good. You And it's just, oh, positive, positive, positive. And you get to college and, oh, it's, it's tough. I got to work a little harder, but I still got dean's list and I still got this and you're good and you're good and you're good. And you keep going on and then you get a paper that you worked really hard on and it's rejected. And they say, yeah, this isn't, this isn't good enough. And then you work really hard and you say, well, this, this fellowship I applied for, I thought it'd be a perfect fit. I spent all weekend drafting the application. Well, it didn't get funded, right? And, and you start to get some data that says you're, you're not the best for this and that this wasn't the right fit and it's not good enough. And it starts to turn a little bit negative. And I think for a lot, there's this sort of uh, almost extrapolation based on our data, our, our trends and sort of the scatter plot of our performance of I keep getting better. Surely my performance will go up. Well, the other competition's also getting better, right? So, so what you're being compared to is a little different. And taking that hit on, um, yeah, it's it's not good enough for this. We're not going to accept that. That's tough. And I think the element of imposter syndrome really comes in when you think, when you've got those rejections, that no one else is getting those rejections, right? right? <laughs> right. That that it's just you, right? Okay, that that's getting those, and therefore, wow, yeah, you, I really must be a fraud. Yeah, you know, I thought I would, knew what I was doing, and then look at me, I'm getting my papers rejected, I'm getting a grant rejected. Well, I guess it's just happening to me. I guess I am a fraud. So, like, you can't really win with imposter syndrome. Like, if you're, I think, if you're overly successful, you could still feel imposter syndrome because you feel like your achievements aren't really that important, and if you, um, you know, fail. Once or twice, you might still feel imposter syndrome because now you say, look, I, I wasn't good enough. I knew it. 
so I think you never really get away from imposter syndrome, even when you're doing well. I yeah, I'm I'm with you. I I, I think that's true. The the other um, slightly additional nuance I'll I'll mention for the academic side. Why maybe it's extra challenging here as well is not just the uh, conditions of it being high achieving people and and now you're competing against a, a tougher group and those things, but it is also a matter of the output of our work in academia is is often some version of thought right and it's what we think about this uh, data we collected or what we think about this topic that we're basing it uh, on existing literature or what we think about something and it's not just us opining. I mean, it's based on evidence in our in our work, but it's ultimately our thoughts that are, are guided by methodologies and, and, and what have you. And when someone says, here's a thought that you made and you spent six months creating and documenting and refining and putting the right points on and exactly wordsmithing it the way you want. And they say that thing that is sort of came out of your 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 core it's not good enough for what we do. There is a real tendency to now immediately equate my idea with my identity, right? And and then that's, I feel like that's a little bit harder than some fields where if I'm making, you know, widgets and I'm trying to make the next greatest widget and I prototype one and it, it fails prematurely or too low a temperature, whatever the context would be, I can externalize it and be like, oh, it was, was a bad widget I made there. Here, the idea is yours. It may still be a bad idea, but it, it feels more like, well, that's, that's a part of what came from you. So it, it kind of contributes to that same neuroses. I mean, and that's that's a function of kind of academic life, unfortunately. I mean, we, we're under a lot of pressure to be, you know, the authority to have all the answers on some topic, right? And so it's very easy for your sense of self-worth to become entangled with your reputation and whatever that might be, number of papers that you you publish, grant dollars that you that you get, students that you graduate. And so whenever there's something that you know doesn't work out, and stuff doesn't work out all the time. All but, the time. You know, if, if there's something that doesn't work out, it's very easy to take it very personally and to feel like to feel that kind of crushing weight on you of, wow, I guess maybe I don't belong here. Um, and that that's totally the wrong I mean, now I recognize it, but again, um, very easy to jump to that conclusion to say, wow, I guess I don't belong here when all of your self-worth is in sort of your ideas and what you produce. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, we've talked about this as part of the motivation of a podcast celebrating failure in academia, but we celebrate so transparently any successes, my CVs, my publications, the LinkedIn profiles, just everything outwardly facing is so positive. And we so poorly share all of the negatives Mm -hmm. that go out there. Those are generally things we don't share. It's almost like a professional version of what you hear of like Instagram culture. Right, everyone must yep. be on vacation and having fun all the time, and just drinking really nice coffee drinks and making great dinners and getting a, yeah. adorable puppies or whatever, and yeah. and not feeling lonely or feeling like they're not smart enough or feeling whatever negative emotion. And so it just feels like this is sort of our professional version of that, where we've just created this environment of of or a facade, really, of success right. w- without any of the backing of failure that led to it. So I wonder if it might be fun in the spirit then of that providing a venue where we talk about failure. Why don't we share a couple examples of times in our career uh, when we felt it, right? That w- when we kind of immediately felt um, imposter syndrome and so, uh, or some some element of it, right? So so like I'll, I'll share a, a for example. I, I think I've touched on this briefly in one of the other podcasts, but it was, was a, a meaningful example for me 
when I first started my academic career and I was uh, as a faculty member and I was making uh, my first proposal, I had worked harder on this proposal than anything I had ever written before. It was the best thing I'd ever worked on. I was so proud of it. It was going to change everything. Like this was my, this was my, my crowning achievement. And I submitted this proposal, just so excited to get the money and do this work. And I was going to be a huge success. And I found out when I got it back, not only did it not get funded, but it was so bad. The reviewers agreed. It's not even worth our time to discuss it because nothing we could say in this room would make this proposal salvageable. Right. And I'm bringing this up from the imposter syndrome. It's not way different than the example I thought earlier of you're good. I'm getting this data. You're good. My insights, my intuition on this proposal is it's good. So the idea I produced is good, 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 all positive. And then you get not just like, ah, you didn't quite get it, but you weren't even close. And it's just like now that's a big delta, big difference between that and the reality there. And so that was kind of one moment where I remember at least for a couple days after it, I was sort of thinking, is this for me? Like, I thought this was great and I'm miles off. So there's one. What have you got? Well, so to to build off, I mean, people always use the analogy of, you know, being thrown in the deep end and having to, you know, learn how to swim, right? I mean, academic life as a junior faculty is, is very much the same way, right? And, but I don't even think the question is learning how to swim. I mean, when, when that kind of thing happens, what you're describing, it's, you're not questioning whether you can survive. You're questioning, like, are you actually a swimmer? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're thinking, is this even for me? Like, it's should I even be here? Like, why am I in this pool? Yeah. Like, that's that's how deep it could go. And that that's sounds right. like how deep it went, you know, for that that example that you gave. Yeah. Um, Which it was beneficial but, in catalyzing that type yeah. of fundamental change. But you're absolutely right from an emotional side. It felt very much like... It's not a matter of tweaking this. It's a matter of control all delete because yeah. none of this is salvageable. What you am I even hold, doing? Here? Yeah. A whole different yeah. strategy. Yeah. But like, so to give just, you know, an example, I think it, it's very similar to that where um, I had one proposal get funded and I thought, wow, this is awesome. Great. Finally, some recognition. Um, and then it, it ended up being a great project. And then I went, we're submitting several others after that and none of those are funded. And so I'm sitting here thinking, you know, wow, what if I only ever had like one good idea and, and that was it? Like, am I actually good enough to come up with more than one fundable idea or was this it? Like, that's all I'm going to be known for this one idea that I had one time and it got funded. That's a great um, example. And so I think that's kind of a pervasive question that, you know, once you have a success and then some re- some repeated failures after that, it's very easy to fall into that trap of thinking, maybe this was all I could ever do and I'll never get funded again. Maybe it was, this was an idea and this was it, right? And that makes you think that, God, maybe I am an imposter. Yeah. I just got really lucky. You, I attributed that first proposal getting funded to luck of, or maybe someone felt sympathy for me. (laughs) Proposals aren't funded for sympathy. (laughs) I know that now, but like at the time I'm thinking, God, maybe someone was reviewing it and they just felt sorry for me and they, and they, they gave it to me. Every, anything was a better explanation than maybe it was just a good proposal. Right. Like I didn't want to just accept that. Right. I wanted to believe anything else. Right, what, because I hadn't been successful since then. Yeah. So. 
I mean, what's interesting about that, I can definitely relate to the, the story. I mean, what I think is interesting there, though, is that fear of, oh, crap, how do I do it again? Right. I, I did it once, but I don't know how to replicate it. And to be honest, I don't know about you. I still kind of don't. Now, I want to be a little bit cautious in what I say. I think there's absolutely a skill to writing a good proposal. I think that you can 100% get better at. But sort of that kernel of an idea that's like, why don't we do things this way? This is dumb. We should be studying this. That moment that's that aha of like, this is something I have to do. I don't know how to foster that. I mean, I, it, it might happen on a bike ride. It might happen on a jog. It might happen you wake up from a dream. Maybe you actually have a brainstorming session with someone and intended for this, and it's actually productive. That's rare for me. But my point being, I don't know how to foster that. And so early on, the, 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 when you don't have a track record of I've gotten a bunch of these that have worked, I could totally get that. And I, I, I don't know if I ever thought of it in those terms, but looking back on it, I totally get that idea. How do I replicate kind of this lightning in a bottle or whatever I had for right. this one idea? But that was my example. What else you got? All right. So I remember. Yeah, no, that's good. So I'll go through a couple others. I've got I've got other specific okay. ones and then other just generic ones. So um, paper feedback. That was what. So I talk proposal feedback, right? So this is again for for anyone listening. This is when we're submitting ideas for funding. But then of course we're also trying to output our work in terms of publications, which are peer reviewed. And I've I've found that the peer review process, um, I think, is the it's the best of the processes we have for ensuring quality, but it's not always consistent. And so sometimes you get feedback that will be harsh, but it'll be excellent. And what I mean by this is it'll be feedback where they say, well, the authors did this, they've stated this in their research question, that would suggest some type of perception-based result. That if you look at their findings, they really talked about more of observational results, which doesn't indicate what people think, only what they did, which you can't really know this. Okay, great feedback. They're actually looking at what I've done and they're giving harsh, but, but feedback based on the thing. Sometimes you get feedback that is personally attacking, right? I remember a, uh, there was a paper we submitted the one time and I won't give any more details of the conference and that because I don't really care to say names, but I'll give the comment. Essentially we got as a one line reject feedback the authors are blissfully or in, or intentionally unaware of any other work that's been done in this domain. This should not be published, and it's not new, right? Which was just like one of those. It wasn't even a matter of here. Oh, here's no. what is the critique. I mean, there is a, a critique of it not being new, but there's no more granularity yeah. than that. Yeah. But it was clearly like, no, these authors. I mean, the subject of the sentence was not the work. Oof. It was the authors. <laughs> the authors are unaware. And so, um, yeah, it, it was a, a tough one to receive. If and when, you know, others get that feedback, I would try to just give it a couple days and breathe. But the other thing I would suggest that I've tried to do now in my own reviews to hopefully not propagate this for others, um, and even when I work with grad students and, and other collaborators, I've tried to avoid critiques that say, you are this, and instead provide critiques that is, you've done this, and externalize my judgment to what you do have control over. Um, I think for me, at least when I received that feedback, the hard part was that it was it was clearly you are this, right? Not you've done this. And I think that that little kind of head head fake there is helpful in, in how it's received because hmm. I, I got that when I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm such a failure. <laughs> That's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> but at least you had authors, so you had co-authors to commiserate with. 
Yeah, without without giving failure. too many details, I was undoubtedly the one who should have who oh, okay. should have been the preem <laughs> the the expert on it to to yeah. have have. Uh, Oof. Yeah. That's oh, painful. Well. Right. Got over it though. Happy ending there, but but certainly one where I had at least at least that moment of oh, is am I maybe they're right? What if these are <laughs> maybe I'm bad at this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, that's a good one. Um, all right, let me think. So uh, let's go back in time uh, to like my first first or second year um, teaching. So I, I mentioned earlier a lot of academia is about you know your expertise and being perceived as as the expert. Um, and I felt that that was really hard for me as a, as a new faculty, yeah. uh, coming in because, you know, whether it's undergrad or graduate, I'm not that much older than these guys, right? Like, you know, at five, five years, 10 years, depending on which, which group I'm looking at, you know, it's, I'm not that far displaced from where they were, where they are right now sitting, sitting in that seat. Um, and so I always felt like kind of like, like I really didn't know as much as I thought I knew. Uh, and so, or they thought I knew rather, right? Like, so they think I'm the expert and I, I may not know as much as, as they, they expect me to. Um, and so I used to get questions on when I was feeling not good, like maybe I just gotten one of those paper sure, comments yeah. back or something I and, and I would go to class and, and, and do, do a lecture or something. And then a student would ask a question and I, I would, because I'm just not in the right frame of mind there, I'd be thinking, Okay, are they are they trying to stump me with this question? Like, are they trying to pinpoint what I don't know or, or what I what I do know? And I, I would be like suspicious of the question um, because I felt like they were trying to like undermine sort of my expertise or figure out you know what I did and didn't know. Um, obviously, they weren't trying to do that. They sure. just didn't know the answer to the question. And um, you know that was really hard for me at first because until I just w- became much more comfortable in what I knew and what I didn't know. And I'm not afraid to tell students if I don't know something now, I'm like, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I'll look it up and get back to you, but I don't know. I've never seen it before. All right. And I'm very comfortable doing that. I don't try to be the expert on, you know, everything anymore. Um, I know what I know really well and just being comfortable to, to tell them what I don't know and promising to get back to them and and definitely following through on it um, has gone a long way. So, I mean, that was just something I felt, early in the process and it was difficult to get over i mean i feel like by the nature of of being somewhat of an expert on a topic you you should know a lot of what you don't know right like you you know the holes in your own knowledge so it makes perfect sense that that you would recognize those it's a little funny and and uh, let's be clear this is not me poking fun at you i'm poking fun at me and anyone else who's had this experience it's a little funny though these sort of audacity to see those experiences and be like they're probably all thinking this about me right like we're important enough where someone's going through all this thought to be like well brian said this and steve said this no one cares right not no one cares that's a little bit snarky but but we're not really that important (laughs) so there's a little bit of uh I don't know, arrogance almost to be, to be like, Oh, that everyone cares this much about, you know, what I'm doing yeah, to where they, like they came to things. class to specifically right. test me. Right. It's like, absurd when you like, think- they just flipped the script. Huh? Right. You know? <laughs> like, no. Which if you allow yourself to think of it in that way, I do think there's a, a beauty in having some like humor added of like, well, of course yeah. this is stupid. Like, let's do like, this is, this is just pure neuroses. Completely so, irrational. Yeah, exactly. So, 
Um, and I'm saying this more for our listeners. Of I, I, I feel like I'm hoping the tone we're getting is like, if you feel it, we're with you. You're not alone. It's okay. But like, also, you're not special if you feel like it's it's. This is just like a neurosis thing. You're you're okay. It's it's it is just something in your mind. Like you have the power to create it and to take care of it and to deal with it. And it's all in your head. It's probably not outside. So I've got other couple sort of generic examples. Okay. Um, and I guess I'd like to talk and see if you relate. I feel like I've had imposter syndrome uh, tendencies when I have had certain successes, which is weird because most of the examples I've given thus far, I failed. And here's how I failed. But I get this weird uh, thing. I feel like I felt it when I graduated with my PhD, and I, I felt like it when I got my job offer for the faculty position that I took. And here's essentially how it went for me. So you graduate, and they said, and now we are calling you Dr. Air. And you say, oh, this is, this is it. It feels pretty good. I'm here. I've arrived. And, you know, um, for, for that walking across the stage, I'm Dr. Air now. Thanks. And we'll talk. And by the time I'm sitting back in my seat in the, in the auditorium where they have graduation, I kind of have this realization of nothing changed. I'm still me. I don't feel like a doctor. Like, there's nothing about this that changed. In the same way with the job, right? You get the job offer, and I'm like, I'm I'm the top pick, number one, best option, so happy, you know, all of this like riding high. And about an hour later, or 20 minutes, or whatever, that's a very short amount of time later, I find them myself thinking, oh, they messed up terribly. They don't know what they've done. They. They, I'm nothing about me's changed. I'm just still some grad student. This is a horrible mistake. I'm gonna let down so many people. This is a terrible idea, you know. And there's this, there's this weird second guessing, and I feel like success is almost as problematic for some of yeah. these tendencies as failure. It's just in a different way that the negative feedback comes from a different source. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like I, I find that that's that's honestly where most of mine comes through is things go well, and then I'm like, okay. Well, <laughs> What did I, did I do anything there? Was that really because of me or was that did someone else pull some strings behind the scene? Like what's going on? Yeah. And, you know, finally you have to kind of, I finally just sit down with myself and, you know, come to the realization that either I am the greatest actor of all time. Okay. And I fooled the dissertation committee. I fooled the faculty search committee. I fooled hundreds of my students. I fooled all of my coworkers or... I kind of sort of know what I'm doing, yeah. Yeah. right? I think that's the realization that you kind of have to come through to get over that success yeah. hurdle of, oh, I'm successful. Maybe it was luck or maybe someone helped me or, you know, they don't know what they did, you know? Well, because if, if you're going to buy into this neurotic thought of I am an imposter for that logic to be true, then what you've just said also has to right. be true. Then your dissertation commu- uh, committee right. kind of have to be imposters because they should have known. And the uh, faculty selection committee kind of have to be imposters because they should have known. And so a whole lot of other cogs in that machine have to have also been really imposters. Right. It's conspiracy <laughs> theory nonsense at that point, right? Right. And it's sort of, <laughs> it's just like a beautiful way of seeing the whole thought yeah. undermines itself when you unpack it. But right. yeah, it's, I, I'm, yeah, it's a, I'm with you. I'm not a good actor for that anyone listening. <laughs> Like I've been in no movies, so it's very <laughs> unlikely that I fooled all of those people. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen you pay anyone like a, a you know a, a compliment insincerely or something that would require acting that would otherwise demonstrate right. your ability like, to kind of very, put on a I, face. I, your your I, I cannot hide a lot of what I'm right. making. Right, right, right. It, it reads all over my face. So. 
So do you have any other examples we should chat about? I do want to make sure, I want to kind of talk about some of the examples we've used for dealing with it. Um, but any yeah, other that's, examples? that's what I want to get to. I think okay. that's good. I, I want to get to those. Yeah. Let's get there. Yeah. So um, let's go through some of the things we've done. Do you want to start? You want me to start in terms of strategies we've handled to, to just deal with these feelings? Uh, maybe maybe I'll start and maybe it comes with a story too. Um, so one of the things that helped me was like just talking more with role models um, who kind of bring you back to reality. Uh, people that you trust, people that will give you candid feedback of, of the work that you're doing, right? And so the, the example that I'll give is someone that I was talking to, someone I, who I consider a mentor, um, about the tenure process. Um, for those of you that have been listening, we went up for tenure this year. Um, and of course, the conversations that I'm having are me overthinking sort of how my work is going to be perceived by everyone else and, you know, sort of low key worrying about whether that work is going to be good enough and whatever. So it's sort of typical doubt, um, irrational doubts that we were, we've been talking about, you know, today. Um, and they basically responded that, you know, they thought, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, you're doing excellent work. They really think that I'm doing excellent work and they, really wish that they could, they were sitting next to me and they could smack me in the head and sort of make me come to that realization and stop thinking um, about, you know, stop doubting uh, my own work, right? And so that meant a lot to me. Like that really made me kind of say, well, okay, this is someone who I respect and I know is extremely successful and they would not hesitate to tell me if I was dropping the ball somewhere. Um, and to hear them say that, yeah, this is great. You know, I, you're doing fine. Um, really helped to uh, alleviate a lot of the sort of self-sabotaging, you know, doubts that I had uh, earlier in the year. Do you think that part of that is also the system we have? Like you're talking the tenure process mm -hmm. with something like that. At most institutions I've ever heard of, even ones that are pretty transparent in terms of the metrics, if you really ask what's required for tenure, it it is sort of intrinsically linked to an ambiguous link like more we, we want you to get best you can get a little bit more than that and so having someone say no what you've done it does measure up it is good enough is a confirmation that you kind of couldn't have gotten at least not in a definitive way you can kind of get yeah you're on the right track well keep going though you know you get those kind of compliments in it but in terms of someone saying oh yeah this is this is fine this is good you know like outright approval i feel like you don't see that in the process until the the right. P and T process till the very yeah till the yeah. very end, and I, and I think that and you know with with imposter syndrome right, um, like we mentioned earlier, there's always a fear of being found out. Sure, like someone's going to find out that I don't actually know what I'm doing, um, and so that makes you actually not want to reach out to mentors or yeah. talk to anyone because the more you talk to them, the more they may figure out that you don't actually belong here. Yeah. Right. In order, you know, whatever you're, you're irrationally thinking. Um, and so this advice I know is hard <laughs> because it's directly the opposite of what you might be thinking um, if you are suffering from imposter syndrome. Right. But I really felt like reaching out to, to mentors and talking to as many people as I could about it um, was beneficial. Like suffering in silence was not the way to go. Yeah. I think it's outstanding advice, by the way. I'm 100% with you. I actually think that is kind of a good transition to one I was going to mention, which one of the things that helped me with it is recognize it, imposter syndrome. Recognize it for what it is. It's a sort of neuroses in your own mind. 
the imposter syndrome as an idea, as a concept, is very external. The whole rest of the world will discover that I'm, because the whole rest of the world cares about me and has done investigative work on me, and the whole rest of the world, external elements will realize this. And it's not. It, I mean, they may be thinking whatever they're thinking, but the point is it, the, the neuroses of it is in your mind. What I like about the suggestion you said of go to someone else is now you're kind of forcing a more uh, overt check-in with the outside world. How is this seen? Help me understand how I come off to others. And I feel like that is a really valuable thing because if you can recognize it for what it is, just even if you're just like having those doubts and that some piece of your mind is still in that I'm bummed out because I didn't get this paper in or whatever, I feel just not good or I'm, I'm just not good enough. If at least some part of your mind can say, oh, but I know what this is. I, I know, I, I'm, I, my, you know, it's almost like I'm feeling this way, but but it's really just because this is, a, this is a symptom of that imposter syndrome. That's what this is. I've actually found that just that recognition of it is really helpful. Yeah. It may not stop yeah. it too. I'm not. I'm not suggesting this is like. Oh, I'll never feel it again. Or it makes the uh, emotion of oh, bummer. I didn't get my proposal in. It doesn't make it just disappear. But it does help me to pick myself up the next day or the next meeting or whatever's coming up and say, well, that's this is what we do. We keep going, you know. And and I think yeah. that's something. Just see it for what it is. Uh, I I think that's great. I mean, it ties into what we were saying earlier, where it it never really goes away no. right again if you're successful you feel like an imposter if you're if you're not successful you feel like an imposter yeah, right. so like you're 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 damned if you do you're damned if you don't um so just you just have to, have to stop thinking that way and just like like steve just said move forward yeah. um you know i'll maybe share another sort of piece of advice um and it sort of ties into the one example that i had earlier of you know students trying to undermine me somehow because they <laughs> Definitely were trying to trip me up during yeah, class. Because they care that much. Uh, because, yeah, because they had nothing else to do that day. They came to class just to try to trip right. me into revealing what I didn't know. Yeah. Right? Completely crazy. Um, but I think that working with uh, undergraduate students and graduate students has helped me to realize uh, sort of how far I've come um, and how much knowledge I have now that I can share with them. Right, because you're talking to them, and you say, "Okay, maybe everyone doesn't know this," because I, I have a, I have a tendency to think, "Oh, well, you know, everyone knows this, right? Like anyone can do this job," but that's not really the case. And when you sit down and, and talk to you know younger students, undergraduate students, and, and even some some newer graduate students, you find out that no, not everyone has this knowledge that you have, um, and you're not, that you're now able to pass that on to them. Um, and it can really help with, you know, some of the insecurities that you may have about your expertise and whether you're good enough, whether you know enough to be a faculty member, um, just work with as many students as you can. And you'll see, man, they, they don't know even stuff that seems obvious to you. Um, they, they don't know they're still learning it. Um, and so that can help to bridge, uh, that that sense of um, you know, being an imposter with what you know, and and if we extend that a step further, like, like even in more just a practical usability of that kind of comment you just made, even if the worst happens and you present, you start out a presentation, a discussion, a paper, whatever, presenting a topic that the listener, the reader, the whomever did know, no one's offended by it. 
no one's like, I already knew that. Don't waste my time with this. You know, like it, everyone's just like, okay, yeah, I get it. That's that's helping us contextualize where yeah. we're going with this. Like it's it's we even in this imposter syndrome, I feel like there's an element that we have this feeling of if I say something that they already know, they're gonna think I'm stupid because I think they don't. And it's like no one, no one cares yeah. that much. Just make yeah. the point. Just say it and move on. Like, what's the thing you need to say? We spend this much on this, this uh, discipline or whatever. Okay, maybe they knew that, maybe they didn't, but that pertains to the bigger topic or wherever we're going. And it's just again this like false inflation of how much an externalized world or other right. people care about us and the things we're saying. Just you know, and I think, move on. I think there's some. Um, I think your own perception can mess with you a little bit too. So like when I think about when I was an undergrad and when I think, or even in graduate school, and I think about those uh, professors that were teaching me, like in hindsight, you know, I, I, at the time I thought, wow, they're much, they're much more capable, much more confident than, than I am right now. Right. Like these guys were great, but I will say that after having taught now for six years, I think that, my students and my colleagues tend to give me the benefit of the doubt. Like, and, and even when I'm totally guessing on something or if I'm improvising something, like they give you the benefit of a doubt. And after having seen that, like, like how my own students and other colleagues react to me saying something that I'm just totally winging because I actually don't know the answer, but I'm just sort of sharing my opinion. I think it probably was the same way when I was on the other end of the table, right? Like, the professors that I was watching that were teaching me were probably winging it way more than I thought. Yeah. Right. And they probably, they did probably didn't know what they were doing all the time. And, but they know, but probably they, knew more about the topic, similar to what we talked earlier, where yeah. they at least knew for the pieces that they're not sure of what's a reasonable trajectory right. to make on this, that you didn't know even that. Right. You didn't right. know any of the roadmap as a, as a student. You were just like, well, this right. is all new, you know. So it seemed like they were really confident, really right. capable, right? But really, they were just kind of winging it based on you know what they already knew. So I didn't learn that until I was on the other other side of the, the table, I guess, yeah. when, with me being up there and having to improvise a little bit and students sort of giving me the benefit of it out there. So, so I've got one more on, in terms sure. of strategies that I'll, I'll suggest. Um, it's a little bit different than some of the other ones we've talked about, which I think the other strategy that I've employed for imposter syndrome is after recognizing that it, it, it is a thing, it's internal, embrace the positive of it. I think a lot of times I looked, and I'm saying in hindsight, I don't think I do this as much now, but certainly when I started, I looked at this as a huge sort of, uh, what's the word, albatross around the neck, whatever, just a, this is a thing I have, imposter syndrome. This is a thing I carry with, I have to deal with this, no one else does, which is of course stupid as a starting point, but but I felt like, oh, this is a thing I've got to, I've got to worry about improving myself and all that. But I also didn't look at the benefits that came from it. So I'll give examples, right? Like you sometimes work with collaborators um, that you meet at a conference and they're just really like fun, easygoing people. But then when you actually get down to doing something and they're, the idea is not really coming along, they're like, well, it'll be fine. We'll figure something out. You'll put it together. We got time. We got we lots of time. It's only 15 pages. We can put that together. Oh. No, it is the, <laughs> and right, you see where I'm going exactly. Yeah. Like the person that doesn't have the worry, that doesn't have that stress of, but what if I'm not good enough? What if they know I'm not good? Blah, 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 blah. The person who doesn't have that, 
may also not have the motivation to read the extra papers and do the better literature review and to take the time to, to sweat the small stuff and say, is this really the best way I can write this problem? Can I cut out six words and say it even stronger? Right? They don't have that kind of... Um, I think it's I think like I feel like it's the same part of the brain that says um, they're all thinking about me. That overanalyzing that gets to that level. That's the same thing that I see when I'm looking at the paper or the presentation or the whatever. And I actually think that it, that piece of it, if you can avoid it, the downward spiral into sort of anxiety and depression or whatever other mental health real concerns, if you can avoid those and just use it as a motivator, can actually be a really positive tool for you. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, is that it never goes away. So you yeah, may right. as well get used to <laughs> well, and it, using I, it to improve your work. Like, I don't know if you've done this, but I feel like sometimes I'll be at, you know, a, a, either a family dinner or a coffee conversation, bar conversation with people that are older, right? And sometimes I'll ask a question or you'll hear someone ask a question. What advice would you have given your younger self, right? This is kind of a common bar question that you hear. And I feel like the most common answer I've heard is, I wish I wouldn't have worried so much. And I get it, but I also kind of find myself now, as I accept that I'm just a worrier, also being like, yeah, but I feel like a lot of what I've achieved came to, at least at some some way because I cared about those things. I just think a lot of other people that are super easygoing, I I don't think they they sweated the small stuff. And so I think it, I don't know, at least for my personality, that it would have worked as well without it. God, it sounds like you're saying they're the real imposters. But probably not. I think, I mean, <laughs> do you know what the weird, so this is, uh, let me, I'll contradict sort of everything I've said here, but I feel like at an element, the whole imposter syndrome thing is BS. Like it's all just in our heads, but it's also as true as it is untrue in a weird, in a, in a paradoxical way too. Like we are all kind of figuring it out. Like we are all sort of just doing our best. And as you point out, sometimes we are winging it, right? Sometimes we're saying, oh, I don't know for sure on this. I'm going to take a guess on this. And in that little moment, we're a little bit of an imposter there because we don't know yeah. for sure. Sure. I guess my point is like the whole thing is whether whether it is objectively true or isn't, it, for me, almost matters less. It's more of like, well, how do you how do you deal with it and and make it do something that maybe supports you positively in how you handle it, as opposed to letting it be like I said earlier, the albatross around the neck that's just like, well, I have this this weight on me of imposter syndrome. There's no nothing I can do but now suffer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that's yeah. that's kind of been my aim at it. But no, I think I think that's fair. Any other yeah. thoughts or strategies or closing thoughts we should uh, have here for for this discussion? Um, boy, uh, probably the only, the only other thing that, that I've, I've tried to do over time. Um, and I don't know if it actually, you know, prevents imposter syndrome, makes me feel better, but I don't know if it actually, I love the you know, get, gets around or anything. Yeah. <laughs> really setting <laughs> I love up. The preamble. Um, it is sort of forcing myself to, uh, narrow my, my own expertise. So mm -hmm. I, when I first started, you know, I wanted to try to be good at everything. Right. And so I had a, an approximate knowledge of, of many things, but um, not a, a lot of depth in, in certain areas. And so that made me feel even more like, you know, an imposter, knowing a little bit about everything, right? Because, you know, we start a conversation, I've got a great two sentences, but that's like all I know about this. So if you have actually absolutely any more conversation beyond those two sentences, I am not good for it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I felt like, let me deepen my expertise on a few issues where I can really dig into 
and then just admit that I don't know other stuff, like other areas. And I'll say, here's what I know, and then be very comfortable saying that's about it. That's the extent of it. Tell me about it. And it actually starts more conversations with people to rather than me try to be the expert on all these little things is tell them what I know and use that as a starting point to start a conversation with people. Um, and it, it tends to go better because then I don't feel like I'm an imposter. I, th- I think you're right. I think other people are deceivingly perceptive at that. Like this is yeah. the thing that I, I like, I'm was surprised me, I guess, when I started to think in this way. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. People appreciate knowing that you know what you know and don't know, right? Like if you are just like purporting to know everything about everything, that's very clear to a listener. And they're like, oh, this guy's, mm-hmm. this guy's full of it. There's no way he knows these things. And it, it's almost like that's easy to spot the fake then. Yeah. And instead, if you do what you said, it's, I, I think especially when I'm talking to someone in industry who quite literally has way more experience about a domain than, than I've had, you know, that's actually, I think, like an endearing way to do it, to be like, well, you've got so much experience in this. I'd love to hear what you think. You know, that, it, like, in a way, it disarms them because right. for them to make the comment of Steve's a moron, they have to give up the comment of, well, you know more about this than I do. I'd love to right. hear what you hear. I just gave you a, right. you know, I, just, yeah. I gave you right. the, the, the line. Yeah. I know three things about drones. Here they are. You, now you tell me what, right. you know, what I gaps. don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so true. I, I just think, yeah, it's, it's, that's a, that's a good, a good takeaway of just, just acknowledge what you don't know. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll make it so much further. Yeah. Well, sounds good. Well, hopefully uh, you all got something out of this. I'll speak only for myself. I had fun on this one. I feel like this, this is one I enjoyed chatting about. I'm going to steal some of your strategies uh, in this. And I feel like some of them, I you're reminding me of things I should have probably been doing more. But uh, when? Well, I'm a longtime imposter syndrome sufferer. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I feel so. like most of us are. <laughs> so so not if. When, I'll say yeah. to, our, to our listener, when this happens to you, hopefully you got one or two things that maybe, maybe offers some kind of value and... Uh, and if you didn't, you know, misery loves company. You're not alone. So, uh, so do your best out there. Thanks for joining us. We will catch you on the next episode of Profit Center. Great.